Today we conclude our sermon series in the book of Job, turning to Job chapter 42, picking up at verse 7. If you're you're visiting with us now, you hear the very end, and there's much that has come before, as you know. As we read God's word, loved ones, we are hearing God speak to us. It's a reminder that this is not the word of some man long ago, but the word of Almighty God. It's inerrant, inspired, infallible. It's as if God is standing here by his word speaking to us. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has." So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived for 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons, four generations. And Job died an old man, and full of days. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Once upon a time, there was a princess, a prince, a beauty, a beast, and they all lived happily ever after. That is not what we find in the book of Job. You might read this and think, what's going on here? How do we explain this ending? Job is not a fairy tale. This is a real man who lived about the time of Abraham, maybe a little bit before. We read in the book about his birth, the prime of his life, his friends, and today, his death. We read in the epilogue a lot of things that sound like the prologue. The end sounds a lot like the beginning. We remember in the beginning all that happened to Job as God gave Satan permission 
to test him and to afflict him with horrible sufferings. The loss of his business, the death of his children, the ongoing horrendous suffering of his body, a fever and sores that oozed and the lack of strength, the lack of endurance, sleepless nights, it goes on and on and on. And he is still in that state at this point in verse 7 of chapter 42. He suffered all of this without knowing why. And yet, he refused to curse God. And what we learn today is that the life of Job is a pattern for our life. Suffering now Glory in the age to come, as that itself is patterned after, ultimately, the life of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. We learn that God's grace is sufficient from beginning to end. First, then, Job and his friends. Last time we saw that Job repented while he was still suffering, not for the sins his friends said he did, but for he himself claiming that God was unjust. We learn that he worshiped God in the midst of his suffering as he repents before he knows what will happen, before his family is restored, before anything changes, showing he's a genuine believer by faith in the Lord. We learn that God humbled him. And loved ones, it is God's grace and mercy when he humbles us. As you're praying during the week, one thing to pray for is that we as a church family would be humbled by God, that we would have a greater sense of God, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, and his love. That's what happens here with Job as he is restored by the Lord. But the way this happens is very interesting. Look at what God says in verse 7. He speaks to Job's friends. Eliphaz, he's the theologian of the group. As one man says, Eliphaz belongs to the God told me crowd. God gave me a word, and God told me to tell you (laughs) what you need to hear. Eliphaz did that. It was brutal. And Eliphaz is called out, but all the friends are. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. But no one says anything here to Elihu. Do you notice that? God never comments on Elihu. We did earlier. You can go back if you want to listen to that. And what does God call out Eliphaz for? His words. You have not spoken of me what is right. God's anger burns. That's who God is. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. And this is almost like a mini judgment day. God calls him out, much like Jesus does the Pharisees, the scribes, those who were pretending to be the leaders of Israel but really weren't, those who had all the pride and the right things to say, but actually inside they were full of dead man's bones. And their pride, their pride is what caused Jesus and God here to these friends to condemn them. But is the final word condemnation for them? Is that the end? We see as we go on. Throughout the book of Job, there are many words spoken. 
And loved ones, when it comes to our words, they're not incidental. I was talking to our kids about that today and talking to my, thinking of that myself, especially as a pastor. How many words are you saying? Enough is enough. And as we think of our words, when they are spoken out of place, Matthew 5, they are weapons of murder. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So practically, think about your words on social media. Your words through email, your words through text messaging. It's sobering to talk to someone in person and then to get something via another method of communication that you think, where did that come from? Our gossiping words, our complaining words, our argumentative words. The Bible says on Judgment Day we will give an account for every careless word we uttered. The tongue is a restless evil. Job's friends are being reminded of that. And that's being contrasted with Job. Do you see in verse 7? My servant Job has spoken rightly of the Lord. And now you think Job said a lot of things he shouldn't have. So how does that work? Well, he just repented. He was just humbled. I think that's the context here. And finally, Job is vindicated. This is what he's been waiting for. He has been asking for God to declare him to be in the right. He's longing for God to to say what God says here, which is what? Four times. My servant. My servant. My servant. My servant. Job's trial by ordeal is over. Satan is proved wrong. And Job is called my servant just like Abraham and Moses and Caleb and David and Isaiah and Israel itself. My servant. Will condemnation now come from his servant Job to those friends? Will they get what they deserve? Will Job finally be able to exact revenge? Will the bitterness of anger pour out on the friends? That's how we would expect in this world things to be done. What happens in verse 8? God doesn't condemn the friends. God brings the gospel to the friends through Job. God in his mercy provides a way of forgiveness, but it's going to be a way of humbling. It's going to be a way that demands true repentance, and they've got to go to Job to ask Job to intercede for them. Incredible. Job, the one that they betrayed, the one they viciously attacked, Job who himself said, you guys are whitewashed with lies. You want me to go to him, that guy that I have hammered, and he's hammered me, and ask him to intercede to you, God, for me? This is a crucial moment in the life of these friends. As Van Dyke says, are they true believers or are they pretenders? Their willingness to humble themselves is the test of whether they truly trust the Lord. If Job doesn't intercede for them, and if they are not humbled, they will die, and their folly will result in judgment. This is eternal condemnation Anger, justice, hell language here. This is eternity at stake. If Job doesn't pray for them, they won't be forgiven. 
But if Job doesn't pray for them, he won't be forgiven either. As one writer says, this is also a test for Job. The authenticity of his faith is on the line here. Will he trust the Lord? Will he humble himself? Will he give grace to those that have hurt him because he has been given such grace by God? Will he bear fruit in love? And dear Christian, it's the same thing with us. You might be sitting here today and there might be someone in this church or in your family or in your neighborhood that you haven't spoken with in years. You may be holding a grudge. You may be bitter and say, I'm right, they're wrong. If they want to come to me, I'm waiting for them, but I am not going to them. Dear Christian, that is not the way of Christ. Matthew 6 says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive them their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. There are some people who claim to be Christians and live in this kind of bitterness for decades. Derek Thomas tells a story. Any Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie fans? He tells this true story. Do you remember mean and nasty Nellie Olson? And the way she would just beat up verbally on Laura? Well, a number of years after the show was over, Nellie Olson was at some event, and Laura comes up, and her face is red, and she's furious, and she walks up to her, and she says to Nellie, I forgive you. After all those years, she had been holding on to something from the show and whatever was going on, and it's both a sad state and also a thankful state that she actually came to that point. That's not how we are called by Christ to live. And if you're in that po- at that point, God calls you and equips you by grace to be forgiving to those who have wronged you. God tells the three friends, take seven bulls and seven rams. This is before the Levitical priesthood, but it's a, basically a form of the burnt offering that we would read about in Leviticus. So if you are really rich, you can bring a bull. And the whole animal is going to be consumed. So there's not going to be any leftovers to bring home in a doggy bag. All of it. And meat is rare in those days. And you lay your hand on the head of the animal. It's a sign or a symbol in some ways of imputation. That animal, of course, didn't take your sin. But it points to Jesus who does. And it's substitutionary. And it's propitiatory. And it's God's anger and justice being poured out on that animal in your place. That's what we see here. Go and take this bull, seven of them, and these seven rams. Bring them to who again? To Job, who's not a Levite, who's not in the line of Abraham, and who's outwardly unclean who has sores that are oozing. And you can picture this in an amazing display of God's grace. He's still sore, his head, his arms, everything. He's lifting them up and he's praying to God on behalf of these friends. Amazing grace of God at work here. God accepts his prayer. The bitterness in Job's heart is gone. The grudges are gone. This is the fruit of his repentance. And you think, 
how can he do this? By the grace of God, as he points to another high priest who not only prays for us, but who died for us. Job is a picture here of Jesus. As he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As he was afflicted and beaten, a man of sorrows, as he goes to the cross for enemies and sinners like us, Job is pointing to Jesus. Jesus who prays for you. Whatever sins are in your past, whatever guilt or shame you come with, bring it to the cross, and Jesus says, those sins are forgiven. Bring it to him by faith. He died for those sins. He doesn't want you to live in them any longer, and he's praying for you. You might struggle. You might say, I I can't. I don't know how to pray. Ask God through Christ to receive that prayer. Pray to Jesus. Jesus, intercede for me. Holy Spirit, help me, Romans 8. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, Hebrews 7. Because Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. He never sleeps. He never forgets your prayer. He presents it perfect before the Father. As weak and feeble as they are, they are presented by him to his Father. God hears your prayer. He's praying for you now. I died for these people. I'm praying for their unity in the gospel. I'm praying that they will forgive one another as they have been forgiven in Christ. Job and his friends. Second, Job and the Lord. The burnt offerings were accepted reconciliation happens between God and Job and Job and God and God and the friends and the friends and God and Job and the friends. All through the gospel, God is just and he is merciful. Satan is a liar. Job is vindicated. And now restoration comes to Job in every area of his life. There's no mention of Job being physically healed But it happened, probably as he is praying for the friends. The winter of suffering leads to the spring of grace and new life. Friends and family, verse 11, come. Aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, they enjoy a meal together. They enjoy laughing together. There has not been a meal like this since chapter 1, verse 4. Isolation is replaced by the presence of loved ones. They are there finally to show sympathy to Job. They give him money and a ring, probably used to help rebuild his estate, reminding us that God allows us to participate in each other's healing, suffering, and restoration. In verse 12, he's given back double what he lost, twice as much as before. Double the sheep, the camels, the oxen, the donkeys. And as this happens, he's not like the rich young ruler who's saying, I've got barns, I'm good, I can just sit back and relax. That's not what this is at all. What is it? We'll have to wait and see. What about the children? Not only double the animals, does he get double the children, kids? How many children did he have before? Seven sons, three daughters. What does he get now? Seven sons, three daughters. So why didn't he get 20? 
Well, loved ones, he did get 20. The children who died are not non-existent. They've gone to be with the Lord. He now has 20 children. God doubles the children. How about the wife? Never is anything said about her, Job's wife. Most likely, Derek Thomas says, this is Job's same wife. We presume she survived with him. He has more children. Most likely, it's the same wife. Why 10? Numbers are symbolic. Fullness, the number 10. Perfection, the number seven. Three daughters, the number belonging to God. And do you notice how much attention is paid to the daughters? Which in this day would have been shocking. In this day, the daughters would not have been given inheritance. They would hardly have been mentioned. And here, that's where the focus is. They're named. Delightful names. The joy they probably brought Job is seen in their names. Jemima, meaning turtle dove, a symbol of beauty. Keziah, cinnamon or cassia, a plant used in perfumes. Karen Hapak, a black powder used to adorn the eye, so symbolizing beauty once again. Symbolically, God's peace, fragrance, and beauty are added to Job's life through the daughters. It doesn't mean that he didn't still remember his other children, as you who have had children die know very well. But God gives amazing joy and restoration to Job here. He has gratitude to God in a new way. And there's a very important reason for why the daughters are mentioned in this way. As one commentator says, Job is the firstborn son of God. He is all that Israel was supposed to be. He suffers all that Israel was to suffer. And now he receives all that Israel is supposed to receive. So he's prefiguring what happens to Israel after they are restored from exile. What will happen then? Sons and daughters share in the inheritance. What about Galatians 3? There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Sons and daughters share in the inheritance of Christ. Sons and daughters, men and women, are co-heirs of the grace of life in Christ. That promise of the gospel is being pictured for us way back in the life of Job. Only God could write such an amazing story. Only God could give us such a graceful gospel. There's something else going on here. The daughters are given status, beauty, and their father's riches. Here's Van Dyke. I love what he says. What does that sound like? Status, beauty, father's riches. Dear Christian, it sounds like you in Christ. It's a picture of the church. What do we have? We have a new name by grace signifying our status as the beloved children of God. We are heirs with Christ of all the riches of heaven. We were despised in the world, but all these things are ours by grace. Job pictures that. His daughters point to that. He walked through the valley of the shadow of death. 
He now receives God's riches, and his children are a picture of this amazing grace-filled blessing. Even his age is doubled. Do you see that? Verse 16. Psalm 90 says the normal lifespan is 70 years. He gets double that, 140. But that's only after however he is at the time of his suffering. Some people say he was 70 when all this happened, so he perhaps was 210 years old when he died. He lived to see his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. His latter days are full of blessing. And this is Old Testament language that's packed. It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. It sounds, as you read this, like paradise restored. Except we do read that Job did die, didn't he? The curse has not been lifted yet. But he did not die as he feared. He died an old man full of years. His epitaph is very similar to Abraham and Isaac and David and Jehoiada, old and full of years. This is a very significant phrase. And yet, as you read this, what do you make of it? Horrible bad things have been said based on these verses that can really discourage God's people. Here's what I mean. If someone reads this on the surface, they might think, this is the friend's view of retribution. Remember what the friend said? If you commit a sin, then you suffer one-to-one. If you repent, then you're restored. So all you have to do is repent, and then God will bless you with more health, more wealth, more riches. That is not what this is saying. Do Job's blessings come as a reward for his repentance? No. Is this something he earned as he suffered? No. Is God under his debt? No. As one writer says, there's two surprises here at the end of Job. One is, God never tells Job why he suffered. He says, I'm God and you're not. And Job accepts that. The second surprise is that the Lord restores Job for a reason that we wouldn't expect. Not because of his repentance, not because of his righteousness, but why? For the same reason he's suffering. I am God. That's why. You're wondering, well, isn't there something more? Where would we go beyond that? This is all by God's grace. It's lavish. God is generous in grace. And it's happening to point you somewhere. Look at verse 10. Do you see what it says there? The Lord restored Job's fortunes. As one commentator says, that's probably not the best translation. A better one is that the Lord brought back the captivity of Job. This is the key to understanding these verses. Because when this phrase is used elsewhere, as Jones says, it's talking about the bondage of Israel to other nations. Job then was in bondage. He was alienated from his his land and his livestock. Alienated from his children, from his wife, from his body, from God himself. He was in a sort of 
bondage. And now his restoration is a deliverance or a redemption. What were those daughters pointing to, remember? The days the prophets talked about. The gospel. What is Job's restoration about? Foreshadowing the return of Judah from exile many years in the future. And even beyond that, pointing to Christ himself and the resurrection, ascension, and rule of Jesus. Let's bring this down even closer. The end of Job is the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament anticipation of the new heavens and new earth. That's what we're seeing here. We're pointed ahead beyond even our age, this present evil age, to the age to come, which is already broken in on this present evil age through the first coming and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit, we are in the heavenlies now, and yet we are not yet in the consummated glory. We know that. The new heavens and new earth are pictured in Job's double blessings. That's what the Psalms talk about. Heaven is a double return for your sufferings. Isaiah 61, 7. Instead of shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. A double portion of the land will be theirs. Joy is the serious business of heaven, C.S. Lewis said. What Job gets here is a picture of that. Why is this important? Because even for us in the new covenant in Christ, we can't comprehend what awaits us in the new heavens and new earth. But we can think of a lot of land, a lot of money, a lot of food, and we can think, well, that sounds good. The material things here are not the end in themselves. That's what Satan was saying. They're pointing to something far greater in a way we can understand. If you think a lot of land and a lot of cattle and a lot of money is great, think of how much greater it will be to be with the Lord. That's his point. Material blessings in this life here in this verse are illustrating spiritual blessings that we can't yet see. This is true even with Job's body that was healed. His healed body is a type of the resurrection body of Jesus. That's where that's pointing. What does Peter say? We have, by faith in Christ, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, Christian, This means that we can have patience and God gives us grace to endure what lies before us. Third, and that's the final thing we want to consider, Job and us. What does the book of Job teach us? First of all, it teaches us about God. That's what this is primarily about. God's character, his justice, his beauty, his generosity and grace and love and mercy. It teaches us that God keeps his covenant promises to us. God preserved the promise that a seed would come and crush the head of the serpent. God kept a people for himself in the days of Job, just like he said in Genesis. And yet, we are reminded as well that God is sovereign and incomprehensible. 
Verse 11, Job's family comes, shows him sympathy for what? All the evil the Lord had brought on him. We are not going to re-preach Job 1. God is not the author of evil. God does not tempt anyone to sin. God is sovereign over all things. There's a mystery here, an incomprehensibility here. There's Satan and his involvement here. There's natural disasters here that are in some ways moral evils. Every time an earthquake, a tornado, a hurricane hits, it's a reminder of the judgment to come. It's a reminder of what awaits. It's a reminder that we need a refuge who is Jesus, the righteous one. All the evil God brought on him. There's something else about that. We'll come back to it in a minute. What else does Job teach us? That God foreordains everything that comes to pass, including trials. It's a part of the mystery of God's providence. But as Thomas says, this book reminds us trials may come when we least expect them. They often come unannounced, without anticipation. We can't possibly know the future. Accidents happen without a moment's notice. Things are fine one moment, and the next, the entire world around us feels like we've been swallowed up by it. There are no areas of life that we are exempt from in suffering because we're a child of God. None of them. We can never say a Christian will never go through that suffering in this life. And yet we learn about wisdom in this. Job is about wisdom. Wisdom comes by the fear of the Lord, not by the things of this world. Wisdom is turning away from evil. And wisdom says, I got to get down on my knees and pray. I've got to pray in times of adversity and times of prosperity. Wisdom reminds us we have not because we ask not. It reminds us we are dependent and weak. We need God every moment of every day. It reminds us that suffering is the normal, expected life of the Christian. Romans 8. If we are sons, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we also suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We learn from Job that suffering is a dangerous time for our souls, that we have to guard ourselves against bitterness and isolation, that we can easily fall into despair. We learn here that in the midst of trials, by God's spirit, God wants us to grow to be more like Jesus. That as we pray for maturity, God may answer that prayer in a way that we don't expect. That might be answered by difficult trials and circumstances coming that we didn't at all foresee happening. And yet God is good and he preserves us in the midst of it. Because Job teaches us about perseverance. The normal Christian life is a life of waiting, trusting yearning for God. Job teaches us that sometimes recovery happens. We're praying for the recovery of some of our dear loved ones right now. 
sometimes a winter turns to spring. We pray that God will heal these ones that are suffering, that we love. God did that for Job, and yet we're reminded that this side of heaven, there's no guarantee that this pattern of restored earthly blessings and health that Job has will be ours. That's not a guarantee. Some trials don't go away at all in this life. Job reminds us of that. Job reminds us of the mystery of suffering. When that tower fell in Luke 10, was that because certain people were greater sinners than others? Is that what Jesus said? No, he said all of us must repent. When a godly wife or mother gets cancer and dies young, is that because of this particular sin? No, it's the mystery of God's hidden ways. Job reminds us not to try to interpret providence or read the secret things of God. Yes, sin has consequences. If someone commits murder, there are consequences. But Job says, don't try to peer into the secret matters of the Lord. Job teaches us about friendship. The friends had no compassion for him. And when you suffer, if a friend piles on, it makes it so much worse. But Job teaches us about restoration. By God's grace, he and his friends are restored. And that can happen, we pray, among you and perhaps people you've been alienated from by God's grace. This is a message for the church. I hope this series in Job has helped you in the midst of your suffering. I hope it helps us help each other as we suffer. I hope it reminds us to show compassion, to pray for each other as a church family, We grieve in different ways. I hope it gives us patience for one another. That we sometimes sit and listen and cry rather than coming up with something that we think needs to be said. What's the best thing to say? Well, it's to pray, to be silent, and to remind each other of the gospel. And when there are real needs that come up in the midst of suffering, to care for kids or meals or helping with yard work or just being there to listen, that we are reminded that we are here for each other as we suffer together. Job teaches us of God's presence as we suffer, that we have a sympathetic high priest, that when everything in our life seems to go wrong, we are not alone. At that time, Jesus is with us and cares for us, And the sorrow that feels so isolating has been endured by him because here is where evil and the purpose of God and redemption tie together. The suffering of the innocent Job is the crux of Christianity. It is only if the innocent one suffers that God can deal with sin and evil. And as Acts 4 said, that's exactly what's happened. Through the predestined plan of God, the cross of Jesus happened. God takes the suffering and evil and sin on himself in our place. And as Christ died for sin and rose from the dead, as the pattern is suffering and then glory, so it is with us. And as we struggle in suffering with self-pity and complaining, 
If you trust in Christ, his perfect suffering is imputed to you. So God doesn't see you today, if you're in Christ by faith, as a doubting complainer. He sees you robed in the righteousness of his son. As Job teaches us one final thing. James tells us this. Job teaches us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, on the return of our Savior, to be patient until the coming of the Lord, to remember, James 5, the steadfastness of Job, to remember the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so, loved ones, we let Job have the final word. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us not to lose heart. Help us to be encouraged by your sovereign grace, by your covenant-keeping promises that are yes and amen in Christ. And help us to encourage each other to press on in love and good works. And all the more as we see the day of Christ drawing near. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.